Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, we'll be continuing our Advent series from the book of Matthew. But before we get to that, like so many other organizations around us this time of year, we would love for you to consider making a year-end gift to the Harbor Churches. Your gift at this time of year will help to ensure that we can continue to bring you the quality content that you've come to expect from us week after week. And so you can easily make a donation to Harbor Churches by visiting harborchurches.org forward slash give. And for those of you that will make a gift here at the end of this year, we just want to say a heartfelt thank you. And now let's head over to Pastor Tim as he brings us a message from the book of Matthew that takes a look at some unlikely people. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew this morning, Matthew. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Tim, and welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, yeah, especially, especially during uh, the Christmas season, it's, it's, it's good to gather as a community. Uh, anybody lose power last night? Anybody without power? Yeah, is it back yet? Anybody not have power yet? Yeah, we, uh, it came back on at 4 a.m. for us. And it was then like you realize that your kids leave every light in the house on. <laughs> Remember that old Tracy Lawrence song from the 90s? No, every light in the house is on. Um, Hey, Matthew chapter one, uh, we'll be there and then uh, that'll kind of be home-based. And then we'll also be looking at Luke chapter two and trying to fill in some of the details of uh, the Christmas story. Um, And so we'll be doing some of that in Luke chapter two and Matthew chapter one. Um, Last week, we began a new series on the gospel of Matthew. Matthew is one of four historical authoritative uh, accounts, think biography of the life of Jesus. And, uh, and so we thought in the midst of uh, a world where everything is uh, unknown, um, everything is kind of spinning and everything is uncertain, it would be really good that we, we anchor ourselves in uh, who Jesus is and that we'd study him. Uh, the author of Hebrews talks about Christ as an anchor to our souls. And so if you're finding yourself right now and you're thinking, man, life feels unanchored, uh, Today, we want to, want to study scripture, study Jesus as an anchor to our souls. Uh, and we'll be doing this for a bit. Um, in seminary, they, we, uh, so you take a class, a couple classes on preaching in seminary if you are to go. And uh, one of the classes, I think it was one session of one of the classes, we talked about the sermon series. Now, um, if you're part of the church, you, you, you've grown accustomed to us doing sermon series. Um, but if you're new, like the sermon series is a weird thing. It's a weird thing. Um, essentially, what we do is kind of, I don't know, kind of like TV almost. We'll take an idea, and for four to six weeks, according to seminary, four to six weeks, you, you wrap those teachings around an idea of some sort. Uh, and so you're going to do four weeks on... Uh, anxiety, and then you do five weeks on the connection between our jobs and our faith, and then six weeks on loneliness, um, and, and those are called a sermon series. And so we we studied this in seminary, and I remember a professor very very uh, clearly saying to us in seminary, "Don't go longer than six weeks. Six weeks is the max. Uh, six weeks." Um, we, we live busy lives, we have lots of things going on, and people need on-ramps and off-ramps. And so if you go longer than six weeks, uh, you're just, you're working against uh, the culture that we're in. And so um, a series like the one we just did, uh, the seven weeks on Revelation, we are breaking the rules that have been arbitrarily set 
by uh, seminary professors. We're breaking the rules. That said, uh, they also told me that sermons should be 15 to 20 minutes. So they're liars. Uh, uh, anyway, so we sat down with the, the preaching team, sat down with uh, the Gospel of Matthew, knowing that we wanted to spend some time thinking about Jesus and studying Jesus. And uh, so we sat down with the Gospel of Matthew, my, my favorite of the four Gospels. And uh, we sat down with Matthew, and we tried to map out a sermon series. And we said, okay, what if we were to do the longest sermon series that we've ever done, 10 weeks? Okay, that's the task. So we sat down and we tried to, to fit the Gospel of Matthew into a 10-week series. And what we discovered was we're just kind of like skimming the surface. And so we went back and we, uh, we, we kind of we, we debated each other and how long it should be. And we wrestled with it and we studied the Bible and tried to figure out like what would it look like arbitrarily? What would it look like? So for the next 55 weeks... <laughs> I love that. For the next 55 weeks, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, and I am not joking. Uh, yeah, 55 weeks. Uh, 55 weeks, um, because we want to do, we want to, and it could be longer. I think what you'll see is actually this could be much longer. Um, but we got a few weeks left in 2021, and then we're going to take all of 2022. And uh, what's been fun for me in the past, and now you'll, you'll get to see it in real time, what's been fun for me in the past is we will, we will be set to teach a passage of the scriptures, and then something will happen in the world and if you didn't know that we had planned that months ago, months ago, you would think that we're kind of cherry picking a subject to talk about to fit whatever's going on in culture. What you're going to see is, I don't know what's going to happen next year, but somehow uh, the scriptures are going to connect. It, oh, they always do. Um, so we got a year, and uh, we're going we're gonna to buckle in, we're going to settle in, and we're going to take our time trying to understand who is Jesus. Now, the fun part about a long sermon series like this which we've not done here. Um, but the fun part for me of doing a long sermon series is we get to look at some subjects that are hard to look at. Um, it is Jesus who speaks on some of the most controversial subjects. Um, it is Jesus who talks about things like hell. What do we do with hell? Um, uh, it's Jesus who spends the majority, uh, Jesus more than any other writer in the Bible, with the exception of maybe the prophets, talks about politics. I know, right? Uh, politics. Uh, Jesus was the one that was killed by the state for like, confronting politics. So if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we've got to look at that. Jesus talks about divorce. That's a subject I've yet to ever teach on, the subject of divorce. But if we're going to take Jesus seriously, um, we, we have to look at the subject seriously. And what does he say? What's the context of what he says it in? Um, my goal out of the end of this season is that we would walk away from this whole thing and have a better understanding of uh, the center of our faith, who Jesus is. Um, so that's the what, the why. The why do we do all this? Uh, it, it struck me four or five years ago, and I'm sure I'm late to the game, so some of you who are much uh, quicker on the uptake probably caught it far before me, but about four or five years ago, I realized that there's a whole new um, communication that we are doing and it kind of subtly happened in my eyes, but um, now it's, like it's everywhere and it's pretty, it's pretty clear to see. Um, but our communication style has shifted within the last four or five years, right? Under my nose. Um, we went from speaking in sentences to speaking in words to speaking in abbreviations, LOL, JK, all the other ones. I don't really know what they mean. I have to look them up because I'm old. Um, to, to, to then speaking in GIFs. GIFs or GIFs? That's still the debate, right? GIFs. G okay, gifts, 
gifts. Um, two, now speaking in memes. I've got, uh, I've got a couple of groups of friends that like 90% of what they say is via a meme. You know what a meme is? It's like a picture with like words on the picture. So it's often quite clever, often quite funny. And, uh, and what can happen, especially when you put the Bible on a GIF, right? Um, or on a meme. What can happen is this clever thing and this funny thing can actually feel, either be so superficial that it skates over the surface of what actually is being said, or it can actually communicate something using actual words that are actually from the scriptures and actual references in the scriptures, but actually miss the point of what the passage is trying to say. Uh, Here's a for instance. Um, The King James version of the Bible, the first English version of the Bible, translates a word of of the Hebrew language, the Old Testament, translates the word unicorn. And so there are memes, if you look up Christian unicorn, okay, there are memes that are floating around saying, these silly Christians believe in unicorns. Now, if you look at the actual Hebrew word, the word is for an animal, a, a ram that has one horn. So the King James translators translated that, well, we'll call that a unicorn. Um, but if you then fast forward 400 and some years, you now were in this era where if there are people who actually think To be a Christian means I have to believe in a unicorn, which is ridiculous. And so now I'm going to walk away from Christianity because I, my brain doesn't allow me to think about unicorns when actually the actual word, the actual passage is just pulled out of context, slapped on a funny picture and passed along into the world. And I think we distort it. Does that make some sense? Um, here's another example. Um, this one's a fun example. Uh, you know, the movie Mary Poppins. Yeah, Mary Poppins. Uh, Mary Poppins, um, beloved, America's favorite nanny, right? Second to Mrs. Doubtfire, maybe. Um, (laughs) Mary Poppins, uh, it's a beloved Disney movie. And uh, Mary Poppins, um, if you you watch the movie, uh, it's this nanny who comes and raises the kids and kind of helps. She's like a beloved figure in the kids' lives. Now, if you take that movie and you pull out quotes from that movie, um, if you take the movie and randomly grab sentences, fragments um, from the actual movie, even the song, and you were to splice them together, um, I, I initially had it in, uh, in the sermon, and then I thought, no, it's, if there's any kids, this will traumatize you. So I pulled it out of the sermon, but it's still fun to do. Look up Scary Mary. Look up Scary Mary. Uh, Scary Mary is a two-minute trailer of all just actual clips from Mary Poppins that will haunt your nightmares. Um, If pulled out of context and rearranged, you can turn Mary Poppins, America's Favorite Nanny, into a horror film. I... I think it's a metaphor. I think it's a metaphor for what can happen if we do this with Jesus. If we don't take this seriously, and it's a sermon here, a sermon there, we can turn Jesus using actual quotes that he said, actual references from where he said it. If we're not careful, we can rearrange those things to say kind of whatever we want it to say. I say that cautiously, but I think that's possible. You can make Jesus sound like the the, the picture perfect, um, the, the picture of Americans, the Protestant work ethic, American dream. You can make Jesus sound like the nightmares, like the, the, the abusive father, like, that, that, like if you don't do it perfectly. If you take these stories and move them around, you can miss the point. So what we want to do over the next 55 weeks, um, with, we'll, we'll pause for Easter in there, but what we want to do 
for basically 55 weeks, is we want to try to figure out who is this Jesus? Not the float above the earth, halo over his head, a white bathrobe, like speaking monotone. Like, not that Jesus, but the, the earthy, gritty, um, the Jesus who, who, who ate with lepers and prostitutes and the Jesus who was so rebellious that they say that we, we have to kill this guy. Like, we want to know who, who is this Jesus? Um, and so we're going to take our time and we're going to go in order, and uh, you're going to hold me accountable that we don't skip any of the hard ones. We're going to still have to skip because you'll see that uh, it's a long book, um, but you're going to hold me accountable that if there's any controversial ones, we will deal with those, uh, and we're going to try to wrestle through the gospel of Matthew. Now, with that said, let's pick up from where we left off last week, Matthew 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. There's also something else that happens in a sermon series is week one, you kind of set up the thing, and then week two, you try to recap what you set up, and then week three, you try to recap week one and week two, and then week four, you're like, okay, I got to recap one, two, and three. We have 55 weeks. I'm not going to try to recap it, okay? So hopefully uh, you're with us. You can follow along, Um, and if you miss a week, uh, we're going to keep moving. So uh, Matthew 1, verse 18. Last week, we looked at a genealogy. Today, we're picking up there uh, into the narrative portion of Matthew. Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So that's the Christmas story. At least that's Matthew's telling of the Christmas story. It seems pretty straightforward, right? You've got all the uh, Mary's there, check. Joseph is there, check. Baby Jesus is there, check. Pregnancy scandal, virgin birth, check and check. You've got all the big pieces, and yet you'll also notice there is some stuff that's not in there. Um, Now, the Magi will come later, so the wise men will come later in Matthew's account, but uh, there's no shepherds here. There is no manger in this. There is no no room in the inn, that whole line. That's not in the story. Um, Matthew, it seems, in the Christmas story, wants to keep the spotlight of the story on one character in addition to Jesus, Joseph. Matthew wants you to see what Joseph saw. Matthew uh, makes some kind of an editorial decision in his telling of the story to keep all the other details, all the other things that could we could talk about, but Matthew wants to keep the spotlight on Joseph, raising the question, why? Why does Matthew insist that in order to understand who Jesus is and what he'll do, we have to understand something about, about Joseph? Let's try to figure that out. Let's try to figure it out. Um, in order to do that for us, 
We have to take the spotlight off of Matthew, which I know is, uh, I'm sorry, off of Joseph. We have to take the spotlight off of Joseph. Even though, jo- even though Matthew wants to keep it on him, we got to take it off him. Matthew assumes that his audience would have known the world around him. In fact, Matthew writes a Jewish audience. You're going to see that a lot as we read the text um, over the next year. Uh, Matthew will bring us into all parts of the Bible because Matthew is writing an audience who knew their text. Matthew is also writing an audience who are insiders in the culture. They knew the world. So Matthew assumes that all of the other things that are going on in the culture, his audience would have understood. He doesn't have to talk about them because they would have known them. So he keeps the spotlight on Joseph because he doesn't want you to lose Joseph in the midst of all of the other things. However, for us, because we grew up in a, we're, we're in a different world, we actually have to kind of get an idea of what's going on out here so that we can understand what Joseph is like and why Joseph, why Matthew makes that decision to put the spotlight on him. Does that make sense? So to, in order to fill in the backdrop, of, the backdrop of the entire Christmas story, I want to leave Matthew for a bit and I want to go to another author, a guy by the name of Luke. Luke's account of the Christmas story, Luke is clear. Luke wants, Luke's a doctor, and he wants to paint for you a picture of all of the details of what was going on in their world. We'll go back to Luke a lot in this series, because Luke is really concerned if you don't know the culture that you're going to miss the story. And so while Matthew keeps bringing you to the Old Testament, Luke is going to keep trying to tell you what's going on in their world. So let's leave Matthew for a bit. We'll come back to Matthew, but let's look at the gospel of Luke and the same story as told by Luke, and let's see if we can put together some of the pieces in the story. So Luke 2, verse 1. This is fun. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. This is the famous story, right? This is the the Charlie Brown version Uh, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Okay, now let's pause there. Those seem like random details. Um, In fact, if you're reading the story, it feels like these are the kind of details you got to get past in order to get to the story. We want to get to baby Jesus, so let's get through this Quirinius governor of Syria stuff. Not interesting. Get us to Jesus. However, Luke seems to believe that in order to understand the story, um, you need to understand the details. Luke, in giving us the details, is painting an entire backdrop of the Christmas story. For instance, Luke wants us to know that the world at the time of Jesus, the time of Jesus' birth, was the Roman world. It was, I know I'm beating a drum that I beat all the time, but, um, which is a better metaphor than beating a dead horse. That's a mean one beat the drum. Uh, I'm beating the same drum. I beat a lot, but uh, I'm a broken record. There's another metaphor. I'm a broken record in this that um, the, the, in order to understand your New Testament, you have to understand that the Romans are on the throne. The Romans at the time of Jesus under a family known as the Caesars. A guy at the top of the Roman Empire is a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. He's name dropped in the story. And Augustus is building an empire. His empire will include the largest government that the world has ever seen, and his empire will include the largest military with the most sophisticated weapons that the world had ever seen. It stretched all the way from England to India at the height of its power. Now, why does this matter? Well, if you're Caesar Augustus and you're trying to build the world's largest empire, how do you fund it? Where's the money come from for this kind of thing? 
And the answer, of course, is taxes. I know that word. Let it set in. Let it set in. (laughs) Feel it. Now, taxes. Raising another question, if your empire stretches from uh, India India to England, uh, how do you... How do you know who to tax? How do you know before you, now like we, now we have different new technology and you can do online surveys, and, but how do you then know how to tax the world? Somehow you have to count them, right? Somehow you gotta count your people. How do you count your people? Well, you have to take, you know this word, we just did one of these, a census. We still are doing this. Um, This idea started in Rome. We need to take a census of the world. Who's part of our empire? Why a census? Well, we need the taxes. Why the taxes? We gotta fund the government and we gotta fund the military. Now, at the time of Jesus, some historians will argue that the tax, the, the average Jewish person was taxed 70 to 90% of their income. It was a triple tax. Um, you were taxed by the Romans, you were taxed by Herod, the king of the Jews, and you were taxed by the temple, a temple tax. Three taxes, 70 to 90%. Imagine living off of, 80, or off of 20% of your income. This is the world that Luke needs us to understand. This is what's going on. There's a census by Augustus. Now, that's the first piece. Second piece, a second crucial detail, is about family. Look at verse four. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in line of David. Okay, pause there. Now, when Matthew talks about David's house, he simply refers to David's house, right? So Matthew assumes like, uh, or I'm sorry, Joseph's house. Uh, Matthew assumes like, okay, you know the story. You know this part of the story. So let's just keep the details at a minimum here. But Luke assumes, probably rightfully, that we don't know the story fully. So Luke gives us some of the details. Without Luke, we wouldn't know these details. They would have been lost to history. So we're grateful for Luke. But Luke will tell us that Jesus, or that Joseph has to go down, show you a map, has to go down to Bethlehem for a census, but he's from Nazareth, which is 70 miles north. So he has to make a 70-mile trip south to the city of Bethlehem. Now, why is this a significant detail? Let's try an experiment. How many of you uh, bought a house in the last 10 years? Oh, wow, a number of you, okay. um, How many of you bought that house to accommodate a, a growing family? Anyone? Yeah, we did too, right? Like we... Um, some of you are asking the question, like, are we? Um, <laughs> it's an awkward car right home. Um, okay, now, how many, when you thought of your growing family, thought about the growing family is, we need to accommodate uh, crazy cousin Eddie, because he, might, he, needs, he needs a place to live, and his kids or uh, that, you know, that, that third cousin of yours who every other year you see at the family reunion, the one that you're, you swear may have eaten paint chips as a kid, but you don't dare talk about it. <laughs> the, what, about, what about him and his kids? You got to accommodate them. Um, or how many, like when we think about the house that we need to, like, we need to create or build, we think, okay, we need a room because we're, you know, we're really sick of uh, having to share a room with grandma. This is not the concerns of our world, right? When we think about a house, we, so when we read 
the house in line of David. When we think about a house, we think about a four-bedroom-ish suburban house. That's kind of the picture we have. Now, depending on where you live, it may be a ranch, maybe a three-story, two-story, depending on where you live. But by and large, we think about a house with the nuclear family. Mom, dad, kids. Maybe grandpa, grandma. Maybe. This is not their world. Their world is different. Not better, not worse, just different. But in order to understand the world of the scriptures, we have to understand their world. When they thought house, they did not think four to five people. They thought 40 to 50 people. The kind of house that the biblical world thought of in most of Israel is a kind of house that... uh, Architects refer to it as an insula. It's a Latin word that means island. Essentially, an insula has a large central courtyard. Some of this is review, right? A large courtyard. And around the courtyard were little bedrooms, often four by six feet or so, small little rooms. You would live in the rooms, or you would sleep in the rooms, but you would live in the courtyard. That's where the life happened, in the courtyard. Um, Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many King James gets this wrong. King James translates this mansions. No, that's, that's what we want as Western America. That's what we want. But in, it's a picture to his audience. In my father's house, there are many rooms. It's an insula, okay? When, jo- when Joseph, when you hear about him coming back to Bethlehem, this is the kind of house. I think I got some, did you show the pictures of the insula? There you go. Um, and then the next one. It's an insula. It's a, that would be a small one even, but it's an insula. Now, um, why do I tell you that? To move away from your family insula was scandalous. You don't leave your family insula. The way it works is dad has kids. His extended family moves into the insula. At some point, dad passes away, and now the oldest son takes over the insula. It's called the father's house in the Bible. Um, he takes over the family insula. And it grows and it grows and it grows until it's too big. And now you split into maybe two insulas. That's the Abraham story. That's what's going on there. You split into two insulas. But up until that, you stay under the same roof as a community. To leave the insula is scandalous. Jesus will tell a story about a son. We call him the prodigal son. And he will have the chutzpah to say to dad, dad, I want to do it on my own. The scandal of the story is that he wants to leave the father's insula. You don't leave the father's insula, okay? Why is Joseph not at his dad's insula? Why is he not home? This is the question Luke needs us to understand, or at least wrestle with. My theory, piece number three, for why he's so far away from home, third piece of our story is about work. Here's my theory. Let me pose a theory to you. I want to pose the theory, and I stand on shoulders much smarter than my own, that Joseph needs to leave home, Bethlehem, for work because um, he's got to keep food on the table. So why Nazareth? Why Nazareth? Well, let me show you the map. There's a city right by Nazareth. In their day, no one would have heard of Nazareth unless they were, set, unless they were somehow connected to a city called Sepphoris. The backstory of Sepphoris. Sepphoris, in the year 4 B.C., is uh, there's a Jewish rebellion, and the Romans come in and flatten the city. They line the street with crosses, and they flatten the city. Shortly after flattening the city, Herod, the king, decides to rebuild the city. It's great real estate here. 
Um, you've got a road that would run up the coast and then cut inland on the map. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. No big deal. Um, there's a road that would cut inland along the Jezreel Valley. It's the only spot where you can cut inland without mountains. So you would take the road. You want the city. So he created this massive city in Sepphoris in the year 4 BC or so. You had marble roads. We'll stay here. Marble roads. Um, you've got all of these limestone homes. By the way, all the homes in, in the north part of Israel, the Galilee region, are almost all basalt. He brings in limestone because he didn't like the way the black basalt volcanic rock look. He wanted the white limestone. So he brings in the rock, builds his mansion. Uh, next picture shows you a mansion. Or never mind, the theater. Then there's the mansion. And then inside, look at this. You can see all the individually cut mosaic tiles. Just stunning. He had uh, pools and hot tubs, a steam room built in this. Uh, this is known as the Mona Lisa of the Galilee. Josephus, the first-hand uh, historian, travels to Sepphoris, and he comes back, and he refers to it as the ornament of the Galilee. Some argue that this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about a city on a hill um, that cannot be hidden because it was sitting up on a hill, Nazareth in the valley. Now, why do I tell you this? Well, if, you've been, if you begin construction in 4 BC, why do you think Joseph is there? What's Joseph's job? Help me out. He's a carpenter. No. <laughs> we say carpenter. Why do we say carpenter? In uh, 1604, King James decided we got to translate the Bible into English. Okay, so we got to translate the Bible into English. Um, now, we, it feels like I'm dogging on Jane, King James. Uh, we're grateful for him. He gave us the Bible in English. But he, it was kind of a rush job, honestly. But he wanted to get the scriptures in English. So he takes the passage about Joseph being a carpenter, and he grabs the Greek language where it says Joseph was, and then Jesus later was, a tecton. And a tecton literally means builder. Builder. And uh, in 1604, he, his translators make a decision. What do builders build with? And they look around England and they say, well, builders build with wood in England. Builders build with wood. And so he decides, or they decide, we'll translate it carpenter, we'll help our audience out by telling them what builders build with. He's a carpenter. And so in the Passion of the Christ, Jesus made the first table. <laughs> He's a carpenter. <laughs> But that's not what he is. Uh, Jesus, he's a tecton. He's a builder. You have to ask the cultural question of what do builders build with? Yes, they could work with wood, most likely, but builders built, by and large, with stone. They were stonemasons. All these metaphors in your Bible about the, from the rock which we were cut, from the stone which we were hewn. Jesus, most likely, was a stonemason. Now, what's really interesting, and I'm Totally nerding out on you. But a, a couple of decades ago, there was a heavy rain. And in the heavy rain, we found archaeological stuff that was buried under the, under the surface of the ground. All of a sudden, we saw some stuff. Uh, it still hasn't been fully excavated. But archaeologists think that the stuff that's coming up is an old stone quarry dating to the time of the Romans. It's a picture of the stone quarry in Nazareth. You can see how it's cut. The theory, the leading theory, is that Nazareth is a pop-up town by builders who were working to build Sepphoris. 
So they put up like a pop-up town where you're going to sleep in the, in the valley, and then you every day make the two-and-a-half-mile journey into the city, and you work to build the city. Then at night, you go back. Uh, later, oh, by the way, um, this is Herod's city. Herod is the bad guy. Herod's the bad guy. Joseph has to move to build the bad guy's empire. Think about that. Later, Jesus will get accused, and, and they'll say to him, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Now, we hear that and think, oh, it's because Nazareth was a small town. No, they, they loved the small town. They weren't like they, just city guys, these Torah teachers. No, they, they weren't anti-small town. When they say nothing good comes out of Nazareth, they understand that the people who built Nazareth ended up working for the enemy. You sold your soul. Raising the question, did he? sell his soul? Why would Joseph go to Sepphoris or Nazareth to build Sepphoris if that's what he indeed did? Piece number four? <laughs> Is that where we're at? Four. Poverty. I want to uh, make, pose this theory to you. That the reason he moves, it's actually not a theory. This is in our text for sure. The reason he moved 70 miles north to Nazareth is because he's too poor. Now, most Jews at this time are poor because of the Roman tax system. Most are poor. But Joseph is poor even by Jewish standards. How do we know this? Uh, Luke tells us. Read this with me. Uh, Verse 22. He tells it like a Jew. He doesn't tell it like we would say where he says he's poor. He tells it like a good Jewish writer. He says, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses... Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is on the eighth day. So to present him to the Lord as written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. What are they offering? Pair of doves. How many doves? Or how many pigeons? Okay. I hate it when people do that to me, but... It's important. (laughs) What law is Luke referencing? Again, these are the questions you've learned to ask. When it says, according to the law, you're not just saying, yeah, according to the law. You're saying, wait a minute, what law? What law is he referencing? Here's the law. Leviticus 12. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb. A what? A lamb for a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. Verse 8, but if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. So if she can afford it, bring a lamb and bring a bird. But if she can't afford it, you don't raise the birds. God gives you the birds, but it requires some effort. You don't have to have money to play the game. You, but you do have to have heart and you do have to have will. So you have to find the birds. You have to get the birds. God still says, I want you in the game. But you don't have to, raise, you don't have to, you don't have to be rich to play the game. Everyone can play the game. Anyone can find the two doves. Find the two doves. You can play the game. Joseph and Mary come to the temple on the eighth day after Jesus is born. And what do they have? The birds, they're poor. They're poor. They don't have the money to, for, for the rich man's offering. They don't have it. They're poor. Do you see how um, 
the pieces fit together, by the way? You see how they start to come together? Um, why is Joseph away from his family? He needs work. Why does he need work? Because he's poor. Why is he poor? Because the Romans are in charge. Why are the Romans in charge? Because they built a military. How did they build a military? Through taxes. How do you know who to tax? You take a census. Luke gives all of these details. It took me 30 minutes. Luke does it all in seven verses. He gives us the backstory of the world, of their day. By the way, um, if they're poor, all the images you have of um, Mary and her baby blue bathrobe with like sitting uh, on the donkey, nine months pregnant, kind of coming into Jerusalem, mentally erase those. No self-respecting, God-honoring Jewish boy and girl like Mary and Joseph would rip God off and not give God his sacrifice and still own a donkey. Just, we, we like to clean up the image. Um, she had a walk, 70 miles. She had a walk. There's just no way she would have been able to afford a donkey. Even Jesus later doesn't have a donkey, right? Jesus has a following and a, a crowd, but he doesn't have a donkey. He has to say when he comes into Jerusalem, somebody get me a donkey. He doesn't have his own donkey. It, it required some money to have a donkey. It's good to know somebody that owns a donkey, but he doesn't have a donkey. Anyway, no donkey. Okay, piece number five. Piece number five, it's like me in a truck. Want a truck? Don't have a truck? It's good to know people that have trucks. <laughs> okay, from fifth piece, pregnant girlfriends, verse five. He went there. This is the piece, by the way, that Matthew spends all of his time on. Luke just gives us a sentence. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. This is scandalous. Especially that it's still scandalous to this day, but in the first century world, this is scandalous. Piece number six, rejection. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Pause there. How many of you grew up hearing this as there was no room in the inn? Yeah, me too. Um, my, uh, my son's was invited to be part of this nativity play, and one of the roles was an innkeeper. And I had to do the whole, like, don't do it, don't do it. Let him be the innkeeper. <laughs> Thankfully, we, we, we've edited the translation. It's better. So guest room is a better translation. Here's what I assumed growing up. I assumed, and I don't know if maybe it was a, a sermon that was preached and I just missed it. I, I don't know. But I'd always assumed that everyone is in town for the census, Apparently, everyone grew up in Bethlehem and then scattered. I don't know why, but apparently in my head, that's what made sense. And now everyone's home because there's a census. So everyone's back in town, and all of the hotels are full. And so they go from like hotel to hotel, and it's like, ah, no vacancy, no vacancy, no vacancy. And then finally, a really nice hotel owner said, we don't have any room, but you can stay where the animals are. Is that what you, that's what we, I don't know where that came from. There's no guest room available. Who? Now, we've looked at the background. The, the word, by the way, guest room is the word kataluma. It literally means room on a house. It's a guest room. It's a room on a house, a guest room. Whose home? Who lives in Bethlehem? Whose home are they most likely turned away from because there's no room in this home? Joseph's home. Joseph's home. Now, I don't care how messed up your family is. And if your family is like most of our families, it's real messed up. I don't care how messed up your family is. If you have a family reunion and everyone's in town for the family reunion, 
Uncle Eddie, who eats paint chips, doesn't get to call dibs on the guest room because over a nine-month pregnant teenager, you make room for her. Unless, Joseph, how dare you? How dare you? How dare you bring, she's, you're not even married. You're bringing your girlfriend, oh, you're going to tell me that story? God got you pregnant? Sure. No, no. Like, how dare you? How dare you scandalize our family? The guest room's off limits. If you want to sleep in this house, you can sleep by the sheep. That's the scandal of the story. And what the gospel writers insist is that God chose it this way. And Matthew spends his time saying, okay, you know that backstory. What about Joseph? Because in the midst of all of this, where's Joseph? He's a nobody in the story. Where's Joseph? Can you imagine that moment, by the way? Does Joseph on the walk down, does he tell Mary, this is how my family might behave? Or does he just really hope maybe they'll be different? Um, when Mary, I, I imagine this is how it goes. This is, this is how it would go probably for most of us. When she finds out she's got to give birth amongst manure and animals because she's been rejected, when she's fighting back those tears, does Joseph try to comfort her? What does he say? Does he... Try to defend his parents. Like, just give them a chance. They'll get better. They'll, they'll warm up to you. They don't understand. It'll, it'll, or does he, does, he, does he sit there quietly? Can you picture it? Matthew wants us to. Matthew wants us to see Joseph. Matthew wants us to catch it. Matthew wants us to see Joseph. Uh, in fact, what Matthew understands is that history will quickly forget Joseph. In fact, if you go ahead in the story, Jesus is now an adult. And notice what they say about Jesus. Um, they say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't his sisters with us? Like, they name his mom, they name his brothers. He's a carpenter's son. Joseph's name is forgotten forgot. Matthew wants you to see, Matthew insists that God sees Joseph. Why this story on Christmas season? Um, This is a story for every single one of us who's ever felt like we are just trying to quietly do the right thing in life. Um, that whole, remember that line about how he's going to quietly divorce her because of the law and he didn't want to disgrace her? Now, we can argue whether that was the right move or a wrong move, but Joseph's heart in that was to try to do the right thing quietly, knowing that he'll probably have a lot of questions he can't answer. Matthew, uh, Matthew insists that Joseph is for every single one of us who's ever gone to work and has felt overworked and underappreciated. Matthew's, jo- Joseph is for every single one of us who has ever felt like um, the quality of our life was on the the strength of our back. Um, Joseph is for every single one of us who's ever felt uh, radically underappreciated. Joseph is for every single one of you who's ever had to go to work building the empire 
of somebody who doesn't deserve your effort, but you have a family to feed and you're going to do it. Every single one of you who's ever gone to a job thinking, I don't, my, my boss doesn't respect me, this business isn't respectable, and yet I have to do it. Joseph understands this. And Matthew wants you to know that God sees you. In fact, and this is why Matthew's my favorite gospel of all the gospels and why we're going to camp out in Matthew. Matthew sees a lot of people that the rest of the gospels miss. The rest of the Gospels do some really beautiful things that Matthew doesn't have a chance to do either. But Matthew sees some people. Remember last week's sermon of the genealogy? Matthew sees the prostitute, Rahab. Matthew sees Bathsheba, who's caught in scandal. Matthew sees Tamar. Matthew sees Ruth, the outsider, who should not, she's, she's not one of us. She shouldn't be part of us. Matthew insists that, that history or his story, God's story, is centered on these people. These people, they, they're necessary for the story. Um, as we'll see over the next year, Matthew's gospel is for every single one of us who feel like our lives are radically ordinary and common. Most of us, when we're in our teens and in our 20s, have these vivid dreams of how we're going to change the world. And if you're in your teens and in your 20s, I want you to dream those dreams. They're important dreams. But then a moment comes in life at some point for most of us where we look at our lives. This is the time when dad starts wearing the skinny jeans and buying the Harley. We look at our lives and we wonder, like, did we make a, did we miss it? Did we, this is the line between he has such potential to he had such potential. Um, that moment where we wonder, we're just going to die a quiet, ordinary life. Nothing special. In fact, your great grandkids, most of us, our great grandkids will not know our names. Do you know your great grandparents' name? Most of us, great, great grandparents, at least. Matthew insists that that kind of life that we would say is worthless. Matthew insists, Caesar Augustus raised an empire. His world knew his name. Joseph raised the son of God. They forgot his name, but his life was far more worthwhile. There's a moment in the story where Matthew is, or Joseph is confronted. A dream. What kind of wild dream would that be? But he had a dream, and he's confronted with an opportunity to obey God or to, to leave and try to build his own thing. And, and Joseph decides to obey. Um, this Christmas season, uh, for those of us in the space, I just need to be reminded that God sees us. Um, I, hope this, I hope this year you see that. I hope this year you see the value in the work you do. Um, there's value in raising up those little ones if you have them. There's value in those moments of, um, of the quiet, humble work that no one says thank you for. There's value in those moments. Um, but but uh, this Christmas season, I hope you also recognize that the value is not found in just the quiet acts of love and surrender. The value is found in investing in his kingdom. That's the value. His kingdom will endure. Caesar's is gone. Caesar's is rubble. His kingdom endures. Um, this morning we're going to take communion and uh, do the ancient practice. And, and yet it's, there's, this, there's this big mystery behind communion because Jesus says, of all the things I want you to do when you gather, the, the best way, the, the best medium to translate what I'm doing in this world that will transcend every culture, every language, and every time is going to happen at a table. And so Jesus takes really ordinary elements. These are not... Um, they're not uh, 
They're not elements that only the rich can afford. They're not elements only the poor have. These are elements everyone has access to. Jesus chooses bread, and in their culture, wine. We're using grape juice, but bread and, um, and wine. And Jesus says, take these elements, and around a meal, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. That as the bread is broken, so too have my, has my body been given for you. And as this bread has been broken, so too I want you to give your, your body, your lives for the sake of this world. And as my blood will be shed, so too I want you to shed on behalf of a world who desperately needs some hope. Um, and so as we come to the table, this is uh, um, for us an opportunity to gather as a community. We say there's really three meanings to communion. Um, there's communion, remembrance, and hope. Communion as I just need to be reminded that I'm not alone and I'm not crazy. Um, maybe you're here today and you just need to be reminded that you're not alone. We're here with you um, and that God sees you. Remembrance. Um, we need to be reminded sometimes that what we're part of is far bigger than us, far bigger than us. Um, we need to be reminded of the sacrifice of Christ and that we participate, we are part of this bigger story. And then hope, a lot of us, I, I assume, this morning need to be reminded of hope, that this life is not all there is. This world is not all we got. Um, we're part of something bigger. And so whatever it is that is in your mind and in your heart as you take communion, um, I, 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 I suggest you grab one of those images and say, God, would you take me and use me? Now, um, at a very practical level, we've got four stations on the front. And um, after we say a prayer and do uh, what are referred to as the words of institution, the words Jesus said, um, I will invite you to come forward and you can come forward. There'll be a few lines. Uh, the tables on the edges have a gluten-free option as well. So um, if, if that is something you, you would like, uh, those are the edges. And then um, all of them have regular bread and juice. We have uh, both a cup. One of the, if, if you choose, you can dip in the cup. We also have um, these little... Uh, shot glasses with a wafer on top and the juice inside. And so if you prefer this, um, uh, I would totally understand why you might do that. And th that would be there too. And so you can just grab one of those and just bypass us when you um, just grab one of those. Uh, and then um, there's also Carrie in the back. Uh, Carrie will be uh, making her way around. Just put your hand up as she passes you if you would uh, um, like to do communion where you're seated. And she would love to serve you there. I think that's everything. Let's say a word of prayer. Our Lord, we are grateful to be part of this church body and to be part of your kingdom body. And Lord, as we take communion together this morning, we ask that you would knit us together in a new humanity that looks different than the humanity around us, that uh, curses each other out less, that builds each other up more. Uh, Lord, would we look different than a world that is consumed by pettiness, by smallness, uh, Lord, would you help us to see that we are united uh, in a far deeper way than uh, the things that might divide us. And Lord, in it, would we give all praise and all glory and all honor to you, we pray. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. As always, we're grateful that you would spend a little time with us. For more information about South Harbor Church, joining our community, or any of the things you hear on the podcast, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock, you can find our service streamed live on our Facebook page. And so once again, from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.